name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro journalist go podcast where we talk where we pro talk in podcast. South- southern accents, yeah. Oh, yes. that, that uh, was a southern accent, was it? <laughs> I have done it before on okay. stage. Now you can stop it. Yeah. Uh, welcome to The Long Watch. This is the internet's pro premier pro journalist go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we are discussing the remake of the classic western True Grit uh, from 2010. Before we get into that, we'll talk about what we're seeing within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. I've got a pretty light week this week. I've only got three movies to talk about. Two of them Shakespeare. Uh, the first of them is The Tempest, which is a fantasy epic directed by Julie Taymor. It's based on the William Shakespeare play of the same name, obviously. Uh, and in it, a tempest destroys the ship carrying King Alonso, played by David Strathairn, and his son Ferdinand, played by Reeve Carney. Uh, they wash up on a deserted island that is the home of the sorceress Prospera, played by Helen Mirren, and her daughter Miranda, played by Felicity Jones. And Prospera is actually a former duchess uh, till she was usurped by her brother Antonio, played by Chris Cooper, who was, all, was also on the boat. And uh, she has a grudge to settle. Um, I love the play of this. I really love it. Uh, the other productions I've seen, I loved Titus. My, like it and Romeo and Juliet are my Romeo plus Juliet are my favourite Shakespeare movies. Uh, of course, um, Titus is fucking yeah, mental. Julie Taymor directed Titus, um, but <laughs> I'm really disappointed with this. The the weight and the depth of the play are gone. Um, what's left is very slight and shallow. There's nothing going on under the hood, really. Tamor does get it. That's the thing. Watching the behind-the-scenes making-of documentary, you see her talking about the meaning of different scenes and rehearsing with the actors, and it suggests, watching all of this preparation, well, how did this not end up better than it is? You know, cause Something must have got lost along the way. There's so much detail in this, the storytelling that she's talking about. Well, once it actually gets onto the, the film, it just becomes basically, you know, an exercise in aesthetics and an exercise in, you know, sort of flashy theatrics rather than having anything going on underneath. Um, Part of that is the abridging that's been done. They've cut too much of it and they've cut the wrong things. They've uh, robbed a lot of the context and a lot of the texture from a lot of the um, more interesting parts of the play. And she's... Actually, the stuff that she hasn't really cut down is some of the stuff that I would have moved immediately to cut down. It's the stuff that I would... Like, I understand why it's there in the play and it works in the play, but when you're trying to cut a three-hour play down to two hours, I'm sorry, but you lose a lot of the fool. You lose a lot of the, like, weird, chatty, you know, minstrel people wandering through the forest. I mean, that's not... You keep plot. You keep plot. And that's the stuff that has remained largely intact, weirdly, is this side thing with the the fools of the play, basically, wandering around through the island. Um, There is a focus on visual spectacle uh, rather than storytelling, which undoes the balance that Titus achieved. And it's it's got a dinky look, too. I mean, it's not very well-realized visual spectacle. I mean, Titus was done with cinematography and real life sets and things whereas she's throwing yeah she's throwing a lot of cgi and stuff like Mm. that at the screen here and it doesn't have the budget or 
it would appear the experienced personnel in terms of working with CGI to really pull it off. Um, there are still some great images. They actually tend to be the ones that are the least altered from the uh, original interpretation that you would see in your head from um, from the Shakespeare play and the stuff that you actually you know see on stage when it's translating that and not trying to gussy it up and make it digitalize it somehow um digitize it it's that tends to work better and the hawaiian island that they're filming on for this is pretty gorgeous um i do think that they make a really interesting choice in uh changing the gender of prospero who's in the play he's prospero but in here she's prospera um and in changing the gender to a duchess instead of a um a duke she tamor sort of unlocks this latent and um sort of gendered idea that runs through the whole work that when you switch it around it starts to become this story of men sort of sweeping this woman aside and and uh you know running roughshod over her life and her coming back for vengeance and that has a really interesting thing and it really affects the um the relationship between her and Miranda as well it be- becomes a really interesting sort of mother-daughter relationship rather than sort of stern overbearing father and daughter there's a different mm. vibe and, and there's a different level of uh in a way sympathy yeah. to it but like in the in the and a different original... level of closeness and and yeah. just, just when i say tone. sympathy it's more in the the scientific use of the term there's a there's a mirroring there like she is seeing her daughter and doesn't want her to go down the same path she went down with letting men run o- run over her sort of no, I don't think I would argue that. But um, I'm d- saying it's it's interesting to mirror the characters that way. Uh, I wouldn't argue that they're mirrored, really. Um, it's just more of a sort of overtly affectionate and sort of softer dynamic between the two of them than you traditionally see when it's an old guy with white hair and a, his daughter. Um, but a lot of the relationships other than that in the play are pretty undercut i think the performances keep it going but the the problem as i say is that they've cut so much the most complete plot is the comedy one which is a huge problem um you do have a phenomenal cast though i mean mirren is fantastic strathairn cooper um felicity jones alfred molina jaiman honsu alan cumming uh also there's reeve carney who is terrible like awful like i mm. like keanu reeves in much ado about nothing congratulations mate you're off the hook this is the worst uh shakespeare play i've seen a uh, shakespeare performance i've seen in a live action film and i don't understand why he's been cast because it's really not his fault he didn't act before this this was his first movie he was just a musician that they brought in to do this wow. and i've got he's pretty incredible on stage yeah well he's not very good in the sort of shakespearean language sort of thing mm. um and i've seen him be good in other things he was in penny dreadful as dorian gray and he's good in that so i'm not i'm not anti reeve carney but he is awful here um and you do get russell brand as well as one of the fool characters and the, he's not bad but it's he's, fitting he's not bad but he's also russell brand and it gets distracting it's he has a very particular one bit and uh, the score by Elliot Goldenthal is like this weird sort of discordant jazz sound, like it's deadly premonition. And 
Um, I don't understand what the choice there was. It's just weird for weirdness's sake. And it, again, it's distracting. And, and it comes up to the same thing that a lot of these choices come up to. It, it ends up being a sort of feeling like, like rather than actually tell the story, they were more interested in making a hip version of Shakespeare rather than actually making a good version of Shakespeare that is hip. You know what I mean? Mm. But it's available for streaming in Australia on Broadway HD, if anyone's interested. Mm. I next saw Macbeth. It is a tragedy directed by Rupert Gould. It's a TV movie that originally aired on BBC4 in the UK. Uh, It's based on the William Shakespeare play, obviously, specifically the 2007 to 2008 West End and Broadway run that was done. Uh, And it's set sort of vaguely in early 20th century Europe, they update it to. Uh, And Macbeth, played by P. Stu, Patrick Stewart, he is... um, you know, coming home from war, he finds these witches. They tell him he's going to be king. He gets all these thoughts in his head. So he's egged on by his wife, Lady Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, played by Kate Fleetwood, to kill the current king, Duncan, played by Paul Shelley. And he succeeds at this, but of course the guilt drives him to madness. I mean, you all know this story. You all have heard me tell this. I have to go through this plot thing over and over again <laughs> every time I watch a different version. There's only so many times I can repeat myself. But... um. This is a really interesting take that I do think is is slightly hamstrung by the style. Um, I think that the the aesthetic is a great choice. The sort of early twentieth century, sort of vaguely Stalinesque, you know, post revolution Russia kind of. They make the witches very creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of choices like that that modernize it up to that period of time that are really interesting and and everything's actually a lot more brutal than usual i mean the opening of the soldier telling duncan about um the victory on the battlefield is now a soldier with any like massive gut wound you know dying on the table and telling this story and that he dies at the end of the speech um Hmm. it's just it's just all darker than normal and all a bit bloodier than normal it was filmed actually inside an old abbey called Welbeck Abbey. And um, they do keep most of the action indoors, largely in these sort of underground, like rabbit warren of tunnels and things that apparently run under that place. It's all very labyrinthine. It's a cool look, but it does end up keeping the film, keeping the, keeping the story trapped between play and film because it's neither, you know. They walk around acting like they're outside, but they're not. They're still in a tunnel beneath an abbey. And it's sort of is a strange mixture between the suspension of disbelief of the stage mapped with these sort of philbic techniques that are being used. And I'm not sure it works out as well as, as they wanted it to. And I think the energy is a little bit off as a result. I mean, the, I'm always hit or miss for me with these films, but actually not really films, more like film versions of plays without audiences, versions of Shakespeare that I've seen. Um, the Hamlet one with Patrick Stewart and, and David Tennant, that was fantastic. I adore the Othello, the old 80s Othello starring Ian McKellen as Iago. Um, those are really good versions of that. But there's also the King Lear with Ian McKellen, which I didn't connect with. And there's the other version of Macbeth with Anthony Cher, which I also didn't super connect with. I think these are better. This, this one with Patrick Stewart as Macbeth is better than those two. 
but um, it still does come across some of the same problems. Have you seen the Macbeth where it is James McAvoy as a chef? No, no, because that's like a 40-minute short thing, right? It's like Shakespeare Revisited or something that the BBC yeah. did. Yeah, but I like, like the, it a lot. Yeah. Um, to take on the witches, as you say, John, is very interesting. Uh, they're sort of these wartime nurses who will flit in and out of scenes, and they'll often just be in the background of scenes that the the witches aren't traditionally in. So it's a little bit like Where's Wally? You're sort of looking around in the background, and they're, oh, there's the witches, there's the witches. Um, there is the scene that's the um, the the seance where Macbeth demands to speak to the witch's master. That is performed in a morgue, and the master speaks through a reanimated corpse that sits mm-hmm. up on the slab. Um, there's a lot of really interesting decisions like that that, again, are in, uh, well done and well judged in how they update the story to the new setting that they put it in, but they're also much darker and much more brutal than normal. Um Stewart and Fleetwood are both excellent as uh, Lord and Lady Macbeth, and the cast is mostly quite strong. Um, Martin Turner as Banquo is really good. Uh, I have to once again just say, "What the hell are you doing?" to the person playing the uh, this the fool. As much as there is a fool in Macbeth, it's the the porter and the mm. um, the guy playing him, Christopher Patrick Nolan. It's just like ridiculous it's absurd and i don't understand why so many of these versions of the plays um that i see that aren't movies um that are sort of either like this stuck between the two or a version of the stage where they go so big that they just become annoying i don't get it um i mean obviously stephen root played him in the tragedy of Macbeth, the the um one with denzel washington and he did that really well because he found the comedy without making it an absolute cartoon character who just sort of stopped and did the Bugs Bunny routine for five minutes and completely, yeah, this guy, no. Um, and uh, Michael Feast as Macduff is like way up and down depending on the scene. Like some scenes he's fantastic in, like the scene where he finds out that his family's died. And other scenes he just goes so big and like his eyes bug out and he screams and it's weird it's a very very oddly judged performance um but again i i kind of wonder whether this is because it is this is a version that was originally done on stage and it isn't a stage production but it's not a movie either whether this is all coming up to that in any case um it is a very interesting version of the uh of the play although i do think if there's one you want to watch at home still it it remains the tragedy of Macbeth with denzel washington it's incredible um, lastly, this week I saw Casino Jack. It is a dramedy directed by George Hickenlooper, and it is the true oh, is story. Oh, it a sequel to Kangaroo Jack? God. No, Jean. Um, it is the true story of Jack Abramoff, played by Kevin Spacey. He was a lobbyist during the George W. Bush administration in Washington, and basically ended up being going to prison for a bunch of like fraud and ethics violation and all sorts of like financing things look i'm not i might not be listing the right uh the right crimes basically i'm not completely up to date on it um but uh he basically he did things that a lobbyist wasn't supposed to do and ended up going to prison for it and dragging down actually the um the republican speaker of the house at the time ended up having to uh having to resign in disgrace because of him get himself getting caught up in it 
Um, this is a real mess of competing tones. It's trying for satire, but it can't land the humour at all. Um, everyone's just sort of in a different movie. I mean, John Lovitz is in this movie, and he's like, it's like he's in like a half-hour sitcom. That's the kind of performance that he's giving. And uh, then you've got someone like Graham Greene, who people will have seen. He's a very, um, very good actor, and he's performing like a really genuine sort of dramatic performance. And it just these these performances keep bumping off of each other and clanging and not meshing properly. Um, Spacey actually is probably the one that threads the needle the best. He's the one that's able to walk that line between treating the the source material and the real life story, you know, dramatically and keep treating the character as like a real person, but also getting in a sort of like sardonic, cynical wit underneath everything. There's a there's shades of Frank Underwood from House of Cards, not in the way that the character is, because it's a very different character, but in in the way that um the movie itself is sort of like poking fun and prodding and sort of undercutting these I- these ideas of politicos and people like that. Um, the movie can never get inside Abramov's head, though. I mean, he is he a snake oil salesman or does he actually believe what he's saying? It's it's never really clear. It can't get his mask off, and so you end the movie. As unsure when as when you started as to whether he actually thinks he's doing good work or not, um, or whether he's just in it for his own wealth, basically, and power. Um, it does a really poor job of communicating the business stuff and the um, the sort of functions and the maneuverings that ended up bringing him down, as clearly evidenced by the fact that I can't even really tell you off the top of my head what it is that he did wrong. I mean, I know he he sort of took money and overcharged and, and all sorts of things. But uh, it, the movie does a poor job of setting that stuff out. And you can see that this is a budget film. You can see, I mean, this is sort of in that weird um, period in Kevin Spacey's career, sort of post-Superman Returns, where it was like from there till the beginning of House of Cards, he was still a name actor, but he couldn't really lead a movie not really. And he was sort of dropping down in cultural yeah, importance. Yeah. And so he did a lot of HBO movies at the, during that time, but the other stuff like this was, you know, there's it, you can see that it's done on a budget. You can see it's very indie and it's a little bit awkward as a result. And then of course he gets House of Cards and that really revitalized his career until it was revealed that he's a terrible person. Um yeah. but uh yeah, you see that budgetary restriction all the way through. There's very poor green screen because obviously they couldn't afford to have a lot of these actors actually out and about in Washington on the places that they wanted to film. So there's very obvious green screens that they're acting against. Uh, and the script is very shaky at times as well. There's also some really obvious uh, examples of ADR that draw attention to themselves. It sort of wants to be an Adam McKay movie. It wants to be The Big Short, or actually The Big Short's a very good example because of all the finance stuff, but it's, it definitely wants to be something like that, but it ends up as something with split personalities instead. It can't thread the needle, and um, and yeah, so such is life. Can't really recommend it. It's also got uh, Barry Pepper in it, who played the uh, head of the gang that yeah. Cheney joins in True Grit. And let me tell you, uh, uh, he is... So much better in True Grit than he is in Casino Jack. 
Well, he is playing a character whose last name is Pepper, as it is in real life, so that couldn't hurt. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So, the first thing we watched this week, we went to the cinemas, and we went to go see Across the Spider-Verse. Lawson spoke about this last week. Uh, It follows the adventures of Miles Morales, his Earth's only Spider-Man, until he comes across someone who is a consequence of the adventures in the first film, The Spot. He is a multiversal threat, and so the Spider Society, which is a group of Spider-Men from across the multiverse, Spider-People from across the Spider-Verse... Spider-Beings. Spider-Beings? Not all of them are people. It can be complicated. I mean, uh, we saw that in the first movie with, um, what is it, Spider-Ham? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not nearly enough Spider-Ham in this movie. Its only downside is not nearly enough Spider-Ham. I'm sure we'll yeah. get some of him in the next one. Oh yeah, I can imagine that. If You, you wanna, love Spider-Ham, don't you? If you want a more deep breakdown of the plot of this movie, uh, listen to last week's episode. Uh, but Miles Morales is played by Shamik Moore, uh, Spider-Gwen, Gwen Stacy is played by Haley Steinfeld. But being introduced into this movie is Oscar Isaac is Miguel O'Hara, the Spider-Man of 2099. And we also get uh, Jason Schwartzman as the Spot. Uh, before I talk about my impressions on it, John, why don't you say your bit first? Yeah, I really enjoyed this. This movie is a lot. It is very long. It is very involved. And you have to be on its wavelength in order to get it. Thankfully, Holly and I are well-versed in multiversal storytelling. It's weird that two multiverse movies within the past two years have had very important things surrounding bagels, uh, but that is fun as well. Jason Schwartzman as the spot is fantastic. We don't get a, too much of him in this movie. They're very much setting him up as the main threat for the next film. But what we get from the Spider Society and these alternate spider people is fantastic. You get to see the breadth of the creativity, not necessarily of the filmmakers, but of comics artists who have done their own interpretations of the Spider-Man story. And we see deconstructions of the Spider-Man story as well. The art for this movie is superb. It's incredible. It is animated fluidly and beautifully. You get a lot of clashing as well in the art styles. Hobie Brown, who is the Spider-Punk, voiced by Daniel Daniel Kaluuya, shows up. And he's of a completely different style as the Peter Parker from India, from Mumbatton. And all of that is very interesting. And seeing all of these Spider-Beings coalesce together is fascinating as well. Because we get a lot of cameos from previous versions animated and otherwise, and all of that is so fun, but it never stops being its own film. And it's very much about regret and what regret can make you do. What and what you... It's about Spider-Man as a narrative, as a series of events in someone's life. And that is very interesting as well. Uh, Daniel Pemberton's score is also fantastic, particularly the music he's got for The Vulture, which is this weird renaissance opera uh, bit, which it gets distorted, uh, and that's very fun. Uh, so, we're not going to speak too long on this one, as Lawson already spoke a lot about it last week. 
the voice cast is phenomenal once more. Shamik Moore has really defiled my defined Miles Morales for me. Uh, but the real standout here is Haley Steinfeld. She gets given a lot to do here, and a lot of it's some really, really good stuff. Um, Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara is really, really good too, and Jason Schwartzman just nails the spot. Both vibes of him, the threat Both and vibes, the humor. Yeah. Uh, I do have a couple of notes though. The movie feels very, very long. We get a lot of recapping at the beginning, and while the first sequence is one that I'm a real big fan of, I've seen the first Spider-Verse movie. I've seen Into the Spider-Verse. I don't need to be told its story again. This is ostensibly a children's film that is a sequel to a movie that came out five years ago, though. I get why they felt they had to do it. I I, I get that, but still it felt very, okay, okay, can we just get get to the plot now? I feel because like you're really overstating how long this goes on for. I, I'm, that's fair, but it it started to just get to me. Is all okay? Uh, but I'm just saying. Is... I think we've been talking about it longer than it actually goes on for in the movie. Okay, but it's the fact that it happens again. That I don't know. It 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 got to me. It's okay. It didn't get to you. It you know that was just what I got from it. How long's it been since you saw the first one? Uh, a fair bit ago. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to say that the first movie does feel like a practice run for a lot of the stuff they do here. It's like a proof of concept for the insane visual flair that this movie has. All of the different worlds have a different visual style, all of the different characters have a different visual style, and this movie uses the idea of the multiverse to interrogate the cultural symbol of Spider-Man. Uh, not just the Peter Potter ca- Peter Parker character, but what Spider-Man means from the character's inception to now. And it comments on how audience members view the character uh, through the lens of the Spider-Society and this concept of canon events, those specific events that must occur in a character's story. It doesn't have to be Spider-Man. These key events that shape our perceptions on the character. And that's very interesting for a franchise movie to sort of interrogate, because it's something I've not seen done before. I would like to see done with certain other characters, uh, but Spider-Man really is the best way to do that. Uh, they're just showing off. Pemberton with his score, the voice actors, the art team, all of the, those different styles, all of the different cameos. It's just really, really good stuff. And it's a really compelling story about growing up. It's a coming-of-age story not just for Miles and Gwen. It's a coming-of-age story for their parents, uh, realizing that their children aren't children anymore, and that they still have to... They have to change, too, alongside their children, because that relationship must change, because things are different. And that's really cool. I had a great time with this one. I like it better than the first, I think, even though it's so overwhelming. With truly everything it does, I walked out with a headache, but it was one of those good headaches. Um, No, I had a fantastic time with it. Yeah, you can go see Across the Spider-Verse in cinemas. We also watched a Netflix original called The Pale Blue Eye. World-weary detective Augustus Landor, played by Christian Bale, is hired to investigate the murder of a West Point cadet. 
Stymied by the cadet's code of silence and the strange behavior of the heads of the academy, Toby Jones and Timothy Spall, he enlists one of their own to help unravel the case, a young man the world would come to know as Edgar Allan Poe. He is played by Harry Melling. This is directed by Scott Cooper and adapted from the novel by Lewis Bayard. I'll let Harley say his small piece before I continue on. I thought this was really, really good. And it was written in the style of Poe. It had, not in the lyricism of how Poe works, because that's really hard to emulate, but what the story is and what is being said is incredibly interesting when you use Poe as a character in the story itself. I think the performances are fantastic. Christian Bale is always good, so I'm not really surprised going into here knowing... He has the voice down, he has the posture down. This is what we come to expect from Christian Bale. Harry Melling as Edgar Allan Poe is transformative. He is perfect as Edgar Allan Poe. He has the look. He has such precise voice work with the accent that he's putting on. And when we were watching it, my dad kind of got overwhelmed because he's like, I just see Edgar Allan Poe. I've seen the pictures, I've read the the poems, and this guy is just not a normal person anymore. He's inhabiting something else. And I fully agree with my dad on that point. It is spooky how similar this kid looks to... He's not a kid, he's older than us. He's how, Dudley. He's, he's Dudley, Dudley, exactly. Which is mind-blowing. <laughs> and he is perfect in this role. And he's got a lot of really interesting stuff to do. Uh, Timothy Spall is here, and he's really good as well. And Toby Jones is always good too. Uh, And a lot of the other cast are really, really strong also. I love the the setting of it. It's kind of continental continental US. It's snowing, everything's cold and frozen. And it gives this really haunting atmosphere. Um... And that's what gives it the air of an Edgar Allan Poe story, including the, the main thrust of the plot. But there's this other underlying thing going through it that feels less Poe and feels more like Arthur Conan Doyle by the end. Like, study in Scarlet, Arthur Conan Doyle. Like, original, first story Sherlock Holmes-style stuff. And that's really dope, too. Uh, this is a mystery story, which is underrepresented in a lot of what Poe, what people understand about Edgar Allan Poe, and it's really cool to see this here. Because you'd expect to put Poe in a ghost story. You'd expect to put Poe in some sort of uh, gothic romance, but no. A crime detective fiction was a really, really keen idea here, and I had a great time with it. I really enjoyed this. It has the feeling, as Harley said, of a Poe novel. Not a spooky one, but one of his detective stories. The mystery here is interesting and has many twists that keep it surprising as the film reaches its emotional climax. The solution of the mystery and the reason behind the crimes may put some people off a little, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. The cast is fantastic, and you get a lot of good work from Bale, Jones, and Spall. You even get a small performance from Gillian Anderson, which is very (laughs) strange. You can't really pull your eyes away from her as she screeches and wails when people get too loud and confrontational. It is a thing to witness, and 
pairing her with Lucy Boynton, who plays her daughter, in certain scenes, it is wild. I don't know if the Gillian Anderson works. I don't but know, but I'm I having love a, it. I'm having a great time whenever she's there. She, like, clashes completely with everything else everyone else is doing. Yeah. But... It's fantastic. It's what her character, <laughs> I think, needs to be. It's uh, a fun yeah. energy. It is. <laughs> There's one scene at a dinner table where people just start arguing, and she absolutely loses her shit. And it's fantastic. But the real great thing about this film is Harry Melling as Edgar Allan Poe. It's exceptional. He looks, speaks, and acts like him. And is very entertaining, but he really gets going talking about poetry and dreams and other things of that nature. He attacks the role with so much energy, he blows Christian Bale off of the screen. Mm. Let me repeat Which is that. really hard to do. He overshadows Christian Bale. Howard Shaw also did the score for this, and he does a good job. It creates a very tense and grim atmosphere that works in concert with the cinematography from Mansobu Takayanagi. The whole film feels cold and oppressive, mm. and that works so well because of the nature of the story and what we find out is the actual meaning behind the crimes. Mm. I really enjoyed this. It starts to lose itself in sort of the last third but it it it, it comes pivots back onto back the tracks. onto track yeah. and that really works uh, one and you more can thing find I'll, this on Netflix one more thing I'll say on the movie it really emphasizes that Edgar Allan Poe it was the kind of guy who if you saw in public you'd roll your eyes because he's just so much he's a you lot know? yeah he's a lot and, and a little piece of interesting The public trivia. reciting of poetry would just make you go, dude. He, yeah, he on. talks about being bullied at the West Point Academy, and you can tell why. Like, like he, he he has victim on his like, face. It's like it's it's not good that he gets It's not good that he gets bullied, he does, but it's you makes can see perfect sense. You can see why he's the target. And it's interesting because Augustus Landor is the name of a character from Poe's final story, Landor's Cottage. Mm. And that is very interesting and features in the ending of the, of the film, it's, which I appreciate a lot. I'm a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe's work, and if any of y'all are, I would really recommend this. Plus, it has a great Appalachian aesthetic, which Lawson would really dig. I do like some snowy mountains and forests. Mm. You get frozen rivers, too. <laughs> it's got all of it. It's got everything. I do it's need got... to start doing my assessing of 2022 movies soon. Mm. Tonight, it, actually. It, but It's got it, it... snow. It's got people uh, trying to breathe hot air into their hands because it's so cold. It's got a, a dead body with a hole in its chest hanging by a tree. It's got everything, it's got everything. that Lawson wants. Okay. Um. So that's what we've seen within the week, but we do have a Save Me from Smallville, which is our small mini-segment where we talk about the scary shit that happens in the Superman origin story, Smallville. We have finished Season 6, y'all. Season 6, Episode 22 phantom oh we mentioned before at the start of this season phantoms from the phantom zone have escaped uh 
This is probably the scariest realization of one of the phantoms thus far. There is a small cottage we start the episode in where a priest is trying to exorcise a demon. A literal exorcism. Uh, he fails, gets shit mixed. Martian Manhunter flies in, gets a hand reached into his gut with some, I guess, one of his organs pulled out? Uh, it's gnarly. It's some gnarly shit. Uh, and that phantom turns out to be Bizarro, uh, who later attempts to possess Clark, but copies some of his genetic material, uh, and, and starts to look like him. Yeah, there's more exorcisms than you would expect in a Superman origin story. Mm. <laughs> if I had a nickel, I'd have two nickels. It's bizarre that it's happened twice. And it's also quite odd that Chloe's tears can bring the dead back to life. I'm not kidding. Do they have, it, like, an it's... explanation for that, or...? Not yet! Uh, <laughs> she's not she's yet. one of the meteor freaks? I'm assuming due to proximity to kryptonite? Like, because she has, to be fair, been near a shitload of kryptonite. Yeah. So, I guess we're just gonna have to deal with life-giving tears at this point. Yeah. And, and also, Lex has completely... Lost, lost himself. It. He hits Lana, mm. and it is shocking when they do uh, it. At this point, Lex is not coming back. No, he's the lights are out. Yeah, it, he's just going to get darker and darker as it goes along. And mm. look, I have not enjoyed this whole Lana getting married to Lex thing because it hasn't worked. But they seem to have realized this. So they do some things in the final episodes of the season where they basically wipe that slate clean and they're like, look, we get it. It wasn't working. Moving forward, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> they wrap it up quicker than I thought they would. How many mm. seasons do you have left? Uh, so uh, we did watch the first seven. episode. Of, we did watch the first episode of season seven. Four. Uh, There's only ten seasons. Yeah, so it's about... Oh, yeah, only ten seasons. <laughs> So we got a, still got a good bit to go, because these are 22-episode seasons, yeah. all things considered. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to get further into it. Uh, but since we have no pith takes, now we will play for you the trailer to True Grit. Mr. Cogburn, in your four years as U.S. Marshal, how many men have you shot? Shot or killed? Let us restrict it to killed so that we may have a manageable figure. Cogburn. What do you want, girl? I'm looking for the man who killed my father. The man's name is Tom Cheney, and I need somebody to go after him. What's your name? My name is Maddie Ross. Are you some kind of law? I'm a Texas Ranger. I know Cheney. It is at least a two-man job taking him alive. Marshal Cogburn? Can we depart this afternoon? I'm going with you. Congratulations, you've graduated from Marauder to Wet Nurse. We're being followed. What do we do, Marshal? You missed your shot, Cogburn. Just let this go. I thought you were going to say the sun was in your eyes. That is to say, your eye. You got a lot of experience with bounty hunters, do you? That is a silly question. I am 14. You can run on for a long time. 
Time for you to go home. I don't like you. I will not go back, not without Cheney, dead or alive. Slowly, we're gonna cut you down. Cheney's here! Help me, Marshal! Now what, Cogburn? Them boys don't think about the wrath that's about to set down on them. Cheney and this gang are rough luck. I do not regret shooting your father. That was the trailer for True Grit. It is a western directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it is based on the book of the same name by Charles Portis which was previously adapted as a 1969 film directed by Henry Hathaway. It's set in the American Old West, and it follows Matty Ross, played by Haley Steinfeld, a 14-year-old girl who has travelled to Fort Smith, Arkansas, to retrieve the body of her father, who was killed in a random act of violence by the outlaw Tom Chaney, played by Josh Brolin. Matty is under instructions from her mother to organise transport for her dad and come home, but she has other ideas. She wants vengeance, but Cheney has escaped, taking refuge in Native American territory with a band of robbers and killers. His capture is now the job of bounty hunters, like Texas Marshal LaBeef, played by Matt Damon, who is tracking Cheney for the murder of a Texas state senator. Once he nabs the outlaw, LaBeef will return him to Texas for trial. This does not satisfy Matty. She wants Cheney to die in front of her and to know that it is because he killed her father. To that end, she secures the employment of local deputy Rooster Cogburn, played by Jeff Bridges, a perpetually drunk eccentric known for his preference for the dead part of Dead or Alive. Matty wants to come along, however, and despite Cogburn's best efforts, he can't seem to shake her. With his 14-year-old employer in tow and the Texas Marshal LaBeef shadowing him closely, Cogburn sets out to find Cheney, and bring him down. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on True Grit. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. The Coens nail it. They understand the essence of the Western, and they're able to do it perfectly here. Haley Steinfeld and Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges are all incredible here in... In as little as Josh Brolin is in the film, but Haley Steinfeld is the showstopper here. She does such a good job for what is, in essence, her first movie. Uh, she's fantastic here, and it's very clear to see why she continued on and had the career that she's had. All right. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. You know me, I love a Western. It's such a great aesthetic. And we've spoken about a revisionist Western before, but this is much more on the traditional line of things. And I think it's a really great version of one of those. The cast is really strong. I love the visual look of the film. Most of it. We'll talk about a little bit of that later on. And it's such a classic story, too. It's very simple, very straightforward, and I liked it a lot. 
Uh, I really enjoyed this a lot. I saw it in the cinemas when it came out, um, and I didn't connect with it as much as I did this time rewatching it. I think that my tastes have just matured a little bit more than they were at 16. But um, I think that this is fantastically performed. Uh, I agree with you that Hayley Steinfeld walks away with the movie, and I think that it's it's actually just something that I appreciate, which is a movie that is willing to be simple, but do that really, really well. Mm. Its simplicity gives it this elegance yeah. to it. Like, not everything needs to be complicated. I love a complicated movie. I love a revisionist western. But the, but the straightforward, plain-spoken nature of the movie is one of its great strengths. Well, I, I think that it isn't a revisionist western in the most obvious sense. Um, I don't think many people would jump right to it, but I think if you actually drill down into some of the themes and the subtext of it, there is a little bit of it there, in the mm. sense that this is a Western told through the eyes of a young girl, and that it is through her sort of coming of age, her dealing with the death of her father, but also her not being respected, basically, by any of the men around her, her ultimately you know, being this headstrong, independent person who gets their own way. And, and in the end, you see in the future version, has not changed one bit. <laughs> like you said, um, well, she, she calls that guy trash for not standing up when she when she arrives at the end. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but you also get, I think, a, a little bit of revisionist Western in the way that it prods some of the characters and the archetypes and, and who is good and who is bad that you do get you know, Cogburn, who is the John Wayne character in the original and, and is, you know, pretty much the embodiment of a lot of those Western ideas, you know, the, the, the deputy there to take on the outlaws, very, very sort of... I mean, of, he's an ex-Confederate, yeah. for Christ's sake. Yeah, and he's an ex-thief um, and robber as well. Like, he is an outlaw himself. He just he just left the, the state that he was in because he didn't want to get arrested. Um so there's stuff like that as to his sort of um, his own morality, and you do get bits of that, like the bloodthirstiness of Maddie and and all of that stuff. I think that there is a case to be made that there is enough going on under the hood that maybe it's not a revisionist western, but it's creeping up to the line of it. I would agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So when we started the movie, John asked me a question. He said, "Who is the cinematographer here?" I know, but I wanted to see if he could guess. And my first thought turned out to be the right one. Roger Deakins. That's fair, but also, how many cinematographers do you know the name of that Jean could reasonably ask you that question and expect you to have the answer to? Actually, quite a few. Uh, But the the reason I picked it out was Deakins' particular love of the blue-orange contrast that was really striking near the beginning of this film. It kind of fades away when they get into the, uh... He loves filming fire. Into the country. Man loves filming his fire. Um, but yeah, let's talk about some of the cast here. The the show stealer here is Haley Steinfeld. Yes. And I think that she was nominated for an Oscar for this performance. Um, she was nominated in Best Supporting Actress, which is category fraud. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah, and admittedly, spot. she probably wouldn't have been nominated if they had run her in lead. That's how things go. But she is the lead of this movie. She isn't just the lead actress. She's the lead, full stop. She is the person that this movie revolves around. 
I don't even think that there is a, a single scene that she's not in. Um, it's entirely from her perspective, beginning to end. And I think that's such an interesting um, idea. Like, it's it's a, the best choice that this movie makes. And it, or I should say this movie, the original book by Charles Portis, it's told in the, the first person, my understanding is, from Maddie as an older woman reflecting on this. Um, it's... That's that's the end. That's the thing that makes it unique. That's the thing that gives it a, its own voice. It's a Western through the eyes of a 14-year-old girl who is mature and precocious and, um, you know, just the way that she terrorizes that guy as she's haggling <laughs> and how frightened he gets when he th- realizes they might be haggling again. Um, I do love how he said, oh, we're not doing this again. Um, it's like... She, she is there, but at the same time, she's also a, still a child. She's still growing up. She still has the naivete and the sort of impulsiveness of a child. And yeah. mm. that it becomes a coming-of-age story as well, that she thinks that she knows how to handle, you know, the darkness and the dangers of the world. And in some, to, to a degree, she does. But, um, you know, there is this... You know, actually, when she comes face to face with Tom Chaney, when she sees poor Donald Gleeson uh, dying on the floor of that cavern, or any Man, number he of plays pathetic yeah, so well, or any number of these things, I mean, it is part of of her her story and her maturation as well. Well, and that's one of the things we have to consider about the time in which this is set. This is like the the eighteen hundreds. It was a hard, bloody world to live in, so you needed a bit of steel and grit in you if you were going to make it through. Some true grit, some might say. That's interesting. When was... Uh, I don't think they ever name it in... The, okay, so 1878 is when this movie is set. So yeah. in the relative aftermath of the Civil War, I suppose, a decade or two later, um, and then it's told through... I think they they make it a smaller gap in the, um, in the movie than it was in the book. In the book, it's like 50 years in the future, Maddie sort of remembering this. I'm not sure that it is... Uh, that that is the case here. Twenty five years, I think they say in this movie. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. I think playing in in terms of the the setting, in terms of the time frame that it's setting, in a lot of those things that the western is, you know, so well known for. It, it is an archetypal western in a lot of ways. Um, well, think about it. It's one of those classic stories yeah. of revenge going off to the man who killed your father sort of stuff. And it has led to a bunch of other stories that are incredibly similar. Uh, An older, gruffer man leading a younger person, most likely a teenage girl, through a really terrible, harsh landscape. We get stuff like... And I'm not drawing this out of nowhere. It's like The Last of Us, The Mandalorian. It's all of the Logan, for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. Which, that's more explicitly a the Western sad, than those sad other examples. Sad dad stories. Sad dad fiction. What was like, the one that... There was one that we covered that... I, I can't even remember it. I'm l- trying to look through. There was a movie we covered that we came to the conclusion might well have been the origin Children of, the, of Men? Children of Men, exactly. That's yeah, it. That's a sad dad yes. movie. But like, that's the, that seems two. like it's the beginning of the sad dad movie. I mean, there have been sad yeah. dad movies before that point. But after that, it just sort of started coming and never stopped. Yeah. We live in the age of the sad dad. <laughs> and, like, to be fair, it's all really great stuff. There's a reason it's archetypal 
and so very popular. I mean, um, the relationship between Rooster and Matty is also very interesting in the sense that they don't really develop that father-daughter relationship. She sees him as, yes, the man who saved her life and who helped her get vengeance, but still as an old piece of shit drunk. Yeah. Like, both <laughs> of these things can exist at the same time. I love that whole, like, sort of road trip part of it after Labeef leaves um, that you, the first time, that you do get, you would you would kind of expect in sort of the stereotypical version of this story for her to be the chatty one, for her to be the one that's irritating the old... He won't or, shut up. He just keeps going and she can't get a word in and he's just going on about his ex-wife and his second ex-wife. And, and the business and the he had. he tried to start. He's like a little old lady, like, recounting his whole life story. Yeah. He talks shit about his actual bl- his actual son, Horace, <laughs> calls him an idiot. And he and he says that LaBeouf doesn't shut up. Oh, please. Pull the other one. Oh yeah, and there's that part where they're having their dick measuring contest trying to <laughs> shoot I think what hard tack out of the air. And it's like, dudes, stop. People it's can like, fucking hear you. It's dumbass. Like, You're tracking like, outlaws. I expect this much from Rooster because he's drunk right now. But you're a federal marshal. Uh, have some, s- have some self-respect. He's lost some blood. <laughs> he nearly bit his tongue in half. Well, that's and federal marshal. There's a lot of like interesting little. I don't know what I want to call them. Whether they're sort of realistic details or just sort of like they're, they're mundane little moments mm. that I think um give the movie a sort of grounded feet, a grounded feel to it that mm. you get like yeah they find these this cabin in the woods basically or in the the middle of the wherever and once cheney is alerted to it labeef and cogburn are both like yeah we've lost him that was the moment we've we've lost him um mm. and then later on when they find him again it's like completely by accident Um, There is no sort of tracking or some clue that they follow or anything. There is all of the stuff with... Yeah, like um, with Labeef biting his tongue because he's getting dragged behind a horse. (laughs) Like, yeah. Um, There's just those little things, even right down to, to, you know, falling down and getting bitten by the snake and everything. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of those moments that just give it this sense of, like... Like, it's not a narrative. Like, it's just a series of things that happened. Yeah. Mm. Even meeting the weird bear man. Yeah. Who collects people's teeth. He says he's a doctor, but I don't think so. Yeah. He talks like a doctor writes. He is so messy and strange. But even there, there is a slight ambiguity there as to whether he's telling the truth. Mm. Because they heard the shot and he rocks up. And... Yeah. Cogburn is like, I told this guy that took the body. Because they found this body, like, hanging in this copse of trees. And um, Cogburn basically... Do you know him? Yeah. They know. they cut the body down to see if it was Chaney. And um, they let this passing um, passing guy take the body with him because he can, like, sell it, apparently. Um, hmm. And You're not I, just going to leave it there. Yeah. And as part of that, Cogburn's like, if anyone's following us, fire a single shot in the air and um, and let us know. And they hear the shot later. And then when 
like they wait and it's not Lebeef, which is who Cogburn thinks is following them. It's this other guy that comes up and he's dressed in this bear skin and he's got the body on his back now and he says, Oh yeah, I came by it honestly. And and there is still a little bit of ambiguity there. Did he just shoot that guy and take that body? <laughs> like- it's likely. I mean, the way that that guy speaks is you just think to yourself, this bloke ain't okay. He's just like, not okay. Something if this tells movie me, was made this year, that guy would be played by Tom Waits. 100%. Something tells me the man who creates teeth and dresses like a bear isn't on the up and up. You do get the best line reading of the movie in that scene, though, mm. where it's like, as he comes out of the forest, it's just this really long shot of a blank look on Jeff Bridges' face, and then he goes, you're not the beef. <laughs> <laughs> And as as the guy is talking, it's almost as if he's watch Jeff Bridges is watching this guy, and by the end he's like, "You are the most frustrating individual." Like that's just the way that he looks at him. Hey, sometimes you see weird shit out there in the wild. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I actually think, in retrospect, that this is a really important movie for Jeff Bridges. It's a really oh, important yeah. moment in his career. I mean, he had won an Oscar the previous year for Crazy Heart. Um, which is a movie that no one remembers. And, uh, you know, if they had known this was coming the next year, I think they probably would have hung around. Although then Colin Firth wouldn't have his Oscar for King's Speech. But, you know, there's a bit of knock-on effect to to all of that. But anyways, um, from this, he sort of creates this kind of new, new persona. He moves out of the Big Lebowski phase, which is what his career had been ever since the Big Lebowski. Like he moved out of the he moves out of the stoner thing thanks to this movie. And he'd done so many of those stoner movies. I mean there's the odd The Contender or Iron Man where he does something else, but he's there's so many like Tideland, Surfs Up, uh The Men Who Stare at Goats. I mean he did that over and over again after the Big Lebowski because no one could see him as anything other than Big Lebowski. But I think that this movie I mean he's basically playing Rooster Cogburn as a sort of undead man in black agent in RIPD. <laughs> like mm. it really is the same like voice and everything. Um but then he moves on to like stuff like The Giver or Seventh Son, which on the the face of it is those are very different movies from this, but the character archetype of sort of the older guy who is sort of the irascible mentor figure to the younger character, that's still there. He does Hell or High Water, which is very much like a, a version of this and bad times at the El Royale, which I wouldn't say it's closer to this than it is to the Big Lebowski. But in the end, I think that this movie ends up sort of rebooting his career in a way that was really necessary at the stage of his career that he was in. Cause you, hmm. you can't get into your seventies and your eighties and still have a great career playing stoners. Yeah. Well, and he also just really fits a Western. Yeah. Yeah, he does. He's like, got that. He has, rugged, gruff voice that's so gravelly that he's able to just step into these characters so easily. Mm. And he doesn't seem like he's trying as hard as someone like John Wayne tried to in some of his movies. It seems very natural for Jeff Bridges. Well, well, here's a question for you, Lawson. Have you seen the original True Grit? No, I haven't. I am going to put it on my... Uh my list now because i do want to see it but the john wayne i mean i seen some clips of it on the special features for this version and 
I will reserve judgment until I see it in full. But there's some choices there that I think, you know, I will I will probably end up preferring the 2010 version because John Wayne is doing much more of a sort of traditional, smooth, leading man kind of performance. Mm. Um, and the woman they've got playing Maddie is Kim Darby, who is... 25 years old. Yes, playing a 14-year-old. And just basically, it, it doesn't work. It, it, it You can't... Like it is very odd to see in the yeah. uh, in there, but they actually did a sequel to that movie called Rooster Cogburn, where uh, John Wayne came back. I think like seven or so years later and did this movie. No, six years later, and he did this movie alongside Catherine Hepburn, which was uh, Cogburn uh, basically um, <laughs> tracking down a group of bank robbers with the aid of a, a spinster played by Catherine Hepburn. And it was basically them on a wagon driving, <laughs> driving through the Old West. And I'm going to send you the uh, the poster for this, because you tell me if this, if this seems like anything other than kind of like a campy relic of the 70s. <laughs> for your viewing pleasure, Rooster Cogburn. And the lady, but it's like starring John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn. But it's like them side by side on I think like sitting at the the seat on a of a wagon, and John Wayne's like got this weird face, he's like ah, and Catherine Hepburn's like got a head tilted <laughs> back to the side, like ha 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 ha, yeah. And it seems like like a it, screenshot it, of the opening credits of like an eighties sitcom. <laughs> It looks like John Wayne is surprised to see a woman. It's like, it, yeah, it's like he didn't expect her to be like, right behind him. It's like, Hawk, a oh, lady? Outside? Like, oh, oh, God, she's right behind me. And she's like, oh, Mr. Cogburn, you're such a card. Um, Jesus. It looks like the road trip of, like, a, a school teacher and a drunkard. That's the road trip. <laughs> Basically, those two characters are what Mrs. Frazzle is in the Magic School Bus. Combined into combined one. into one person, but actually, kind of, I don't think it'll be good. But I want to see that movie. <laughs> I want to. Know, I want to know what that is. Um, like it, so when did that come out? It immediately 75. makes you curious. It makes you curious. So that's, that's what a, that's sort of late John Wayne too. Yeah, he does True Grit, the original True Grit in '69, and then he comes back six years later and does Rooster Cogburn. Um, and it'll be late Catherine Hepburn as well, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. When when did John Wayne die? John Wayne died four years after that at the age of 72. Um, and Catherine Hepburn lasted quite a deal longer. She lasted until 2003 and died at the age of 96. Um, so I think they would have been around the same age, probably in their, their late 60s. Um, and I think that that's one of the strong things that the Coen brothers do here is making him, making Rooster... Kind of like he he sort of blurs the line between pathetic and kind of dangerous. Yeah, mm. he's kind of a screw up. Yeah, yeah, he's perpetually drunk. He knows what he's doing, but he is at the end of his tenure at yeah. this point. He and he's not can't overly do bright. It like he could, no, he's not no. overly bright. I mean, like I think it's it's such an instructive reveal of his character is when we see him in that courtroom sequence at the beginning when he's testifying because 
you get a lot of of him. You get his wit and you get his sort of pushing back at authority and not liking to be questioned. But you also get how easily led he is, the way that he sort of puffs up a bit when the crowd starts sort of laughing at his jokes and he sort of like plays along like a bit of an entertainer. But the way that he totally walks into the uh, Mm. defense attorney's um, questions and creates this big opening for him to be basically discredited and humiliated in front of the court. Also have to say, fantastic facial hair all across this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No notes. The beards, the moustaches, especially that guy who was haggling with Matty. Exceptional. Exquisite. Okay. I do have a question. And Booster's no slouch himself. What is the deal with the barnyard animal, dude? I don't know. That's a good question. He's just a weird little guy. I think it is just that this is a Coen Brothers movie. They, like, was... Yeah, they've played everything else so damn serious. They just need just but they one haven't... guy who makes animal noises. But they haven't totally. I mean, this is a funny movie. It doesn't appear yeah. like it, but it, it's humor that's built out of characters, not built mm. out of, this is a comedy, so we got to be funny. Yeah, but, The shooting contest. Yeah, but also just like the general, like, if you would like to sleep in a coffin, it will be all right. It would be all right. That's... <laughs> That's a punchline, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or the whole, just the general sort of back and forth with Brewster especially, like the way he prattles on as they're riding after LaBeef leaves him the first time, or the way that Maddie tries to like defuse that argument between him and LaBeef by saying like, would you like to hear this scary story? Um, I'll need one of you I'll, to pitch in. I'll tell you what to say. But I will do the rest of the characters myself. <laughs> Like I this. wanted to hear the story. I wanted to hear the story, to, to be honest. I wanted to see those two brutal individuals who are not good with people try to do this. It's, I wanted it, to see that. The humour is there, but it's very dialogue heavy. It's very yeah. much mm. about the dialogue. Um, let's talk a bit about the beef. But hold on, I just wanted to say, before we move on entirely from Weird Barnyard Guy... Uh, the moment he showed up and started doing the farmyard noises, Harley and I were like, we are 100% behind this guy. We want him to get out of this alive, if for no other reason. Then he's just a funny little guy. It's just a funny like, little guy. I, I like the idea that if 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 the gang is questioned, if the Pepper gang is questioned, they're just like, oh yeah, him? He got kicked in the head by a horse? Now he just does barnyard sounds. He pulls his weight. He pulls but, his weight so we keep him around, but when he got it's shot, not good conversation. When he got shot, I loudly booed. I booed the movie because I was like, boo, come on, he was fun. Well, I remember, did you see that the doctor just like pieces out at the end as they're all racing towards Rooster yeah, Cogburn? Yeah, he, he leaves. <laughs> like, th- three of them go down, but he just sort of like slides down the side of his horse and rides past. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like, completely fair. To be fair, Cogburn did say, "Yeah, you, yeah, you and you, you guys can go. I got nothing. I'll, I'll catch up with you guys later on. You're still on my shit list. Don't forget that. But you're not my priority. One of them uh, gets shot, cracks their head on a rock. Oh yeah, the down. dude, the dude wearing the army uniform. I love how there's army guy, the doctor, and fucking Michael Winslow over here." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it really yeah, so is a beef. Yes, yes, Le beef. Um, it's sort of bit, 
I suppose in some ways he is representative of a more traditional Western hero. Mm. Or a more yeah. laid back, not laid back, more straight back one, you know, one who doesn't mm. slouch all over the, the place. And, yeah, exactly. He's not a drunkard. Yeah. He's a bit of a creep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, in that first scene where he's like, thought about stealing a kiss, I was like, Damon, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Do not. Um, but again, I think, I think these characters are so well pitched in the way that they work with each other. Their yeah. personalities uh, create this fascinating little triptych that just works together. I think of that scene after Maddie chases after them and crosses the river, and the beast's like, "Right, I'm gonna like give you a spanking. I'm gonna smack you with this stick," and um, it just goes on long enough for it to be like starting to be really disturbing, and then yeah. um, Maddie sort of shouts out, "Are you gonna let him d- do this, Marshall?" and then Cogburn's just like, no, I don't reckon I will. <laughs> and he takes out his gun. Um, yeah, he's just like, okay, I'll but, stop him, I guess. But that's a scene that is really instructive of all three characters and mm. places all of those characters against each other in a really interesting way. And the way then that the sort of allegiances within that little trio shift around. And from that point on, even though Cogburn... like. Let's be honest, even if Maddie hadn't crossed the river, I don't think the partnership with Cogburn would have lasted very long because <laughs> no, they no. really get on each other's nerves really quickly. But the way that Cogburn just sort of, from that point on, Labeef is on his shit list and he's poking and prodding and like teasing him at the, the camp that night. And it's the way that it's all put together is like, I think this is a real masterpiece of a script in terms of its, yeah. its writing. And all three of these people are being put into this situation because of Maddie's Maddie's steadfastness and sheer bloody-mindedness. And it puts these two men at loggerheads because they do not get along. They're like chalk and cheese, and you get so much good dialogue between them, but they all are working to the same purpose, which is getting rid of this outlaw. He's killed a state senator and his dog, he's killed Matty's father, and is Josh Brolin. I do I do like the conversation they have about... Not that they're killing him uh, because he's Josh Brolin. That's just a extra thing I like, on top. I like the discussion they have in the cabin about the crimes that Cheney has committed, and the use of the Latin there. Mm. I love Cogburn's line there, it's like, uh, it's something along the lines of, he's... He's almost bitten his tongue off, and he's stringing against English. It's like he, he, his tongue is almost bitten off, and he spills over English. Yeah. Um, and the, the comparison they make is, like, shooting the dog uh, was not specifically a crime, it merely breaks the social moray, but the killing of the <laughs> senator, that one is illegal. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's very Coen Brothers. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. The Coen Brothers are a really interesting choice here. Mm. Um. I haven't watched a lot of their movies, but a Western is an interesting flavor for the Coen brothers. They've done a lot of Westerns. I mean, they did No Country for Old Men, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. They have done A Brother Where Art Thou, which has, yes, it's more of a epic, but it has Western elements to it. And that is all very interesting. You see, I've seen The Hudsucker Proxy, I've seen Fargo, The Big Lebowski, 
O brother, where art thou? Intolerable cruelty, the lady killers, no country for old men, burn after reading, true grit, hail Caesar, and the tragedy of Macbeth. So I've seen a fair amount of theirs. Um, You've seen the lady killers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not their best. Yeah, not their worst either. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they've actually stopped working together as directors, because... It seems that they're moving... Because well, into- Joel Cohen things, did yeah. Tragedy of Macbeth. Yeah. That's not a Cohen Brothers movie. Yeah, he did that That's by just himself. Joel Cohen. And Ethan Cohen has a movie coming out this year called Drive Away Dolls, which also stars Matt Damon. Um, but mm. that's by himself as well. They both have a movie listed on their IMDb called uh, The Zebra Striped Hearse. Um, but let me just see here. Uh, apparently, it's that that this is from a rumor at the beginning of this year um, from a website called World of Real. So I don't know how accurate this place traditionally is, but sounds like um, based on a book, private detective sort of thing. Well, to be fair, they have been working a lot for their entire careers at this point. Mm. So it is good to see yeah. them. Not doing only their writing own and thing. directing movies, but writing movies for other people as well. Yeah, this it it's it's like the Wachowskis. Matrix Resurrections was only one of them. Mm. So these directing the these directing partnerships are a really interesting concept. But it is interesting and nice to see them do their own thing also. Yeah, to be able to stretch their wings separate from their directing partner. Yeah, but like. The style still gets carried over. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, you know, it's... Working with family can be stressful. (laughs) Can it, Harley? I'm I'm, I'm being legit. I know, I know. Just, like, coming from you, that seemed loaded. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, like, the, the creative process is an incredibly tough one. It is very emotional. You're bringing something to the world. It is a lot, a lot of stress. And... These directing partnerships are really interesting because these are people who are simpatico. They work together incredibly well. But, like, there's a reason people say never get into business with family. You know? Like, sometimes there can be disagreements, and if they're big disagreements, those disagreements don't just go away. They when can you clock spill off. over. Yeah, like, but. There is no walking away from that. It is very if clear you're going that back both, to the same place. It's very clear that both Cohen brothers have the same inspirations that they're pulling from, and they've done such a good job here at hmm. being able to capture what has inspired them in the past, all of those westerns that they clearly have appreciated, including the original True Grit, and they do such a great job at capturing the landscape of it, the feeling of the western they film in some gorgeous spots who's the who's the guy who plays the leader of that gang barry pepper barry, barry pepper. pepper he's really good here yeah he is he's really really good for as um, little as he's in the film no I'd... but like he's a standout in that regard because when he's on screen it's like this is not what i expected you to be like well, i that's appreciate the thing, that when cheney that... finally comes up he's deeply unimpressive like, yeah. that's actually a really deflating sequence, I think, for the sort of myth of Tom Chaney as this, you know, big villain. Everyone's sort of building him up the whole movie, and you're sort of waiting for him to get there. And when you the, get there, he's the, a real dope. He killed a state senator. It's like, yeah, 
it, at that point in time, it wasn't terribly hard to do. Yeah, it's like it's not that impressive. He all he is is kind of an idiot with poor impulse control and access to weaponry. Like, yeah, yeah. he or like, the way that he immediately gets shot by Maddie, the way that Barry yeah. Pepper just completely dismisses any concern that he has, <laughs> and then just leaves him behind when they leave. Yeah, it's like, and he's like. You're, you are safe. He's not going to do anything, because if he does, he's not getting paid. So I, I do like the fact that... And he, he actually, Pepper, <laughs> he starts to respect Matty for her well, lack like he of shits at, given. John, he starts out respecting her. Yeah. Because he's like, you've made your way out here. Yeah, you had a, a marshal with you, but I know Cogburn, and he's kind of a mess up. <laughs> so... You're probably the brains of the operation. I respect you, girl. I do like Cheney. Like he's the, an idiot. <laughs> I do like the little hints of like the, his prior relationship with Cogburn, like the way that they sort of trade barbs at each other. Mm. Uh, that like the almost like this is a routine. Like yeah, I'll, I'll it, like, you fire the, the gun, I'll fire shit. the gun. It's the petty little shit. Mm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And almost, like, I think Pepper thinks more about the Barnyard Boy than he does of Chaney. All things considered. I really do love that scene where Chaney's like, no, we need to do something about this. You need to take me to a doctor. Marshals are coming. And Pepper's like, it's fine. It's okay. It's not a big deal. You stay here, watch the girl. We're going to go off. We're going to do some errands, I guess, <laughs> and we'll get back to you. No, but it's like, after the reveal of Chaney as kind of this pathetic, blustery idiot, it is good to see one of the villains actually have some weight to him. Mm. Uh, because, like, Chaney is our final villain in the end, but Cogburn has no personal agenda with Chaney. Like, no. Chaney is uh, an enemy to Maddie and Labeef. So that's really interesting, too. I do think... I, we did sort of skip over this. I do think that Maddie's allegiance switches a little too quickly. Once, um, Basically, once they have that shooting contest, she switches over to Labeef pretty quickly mm. after basically, you know, talking about how impressed she has been with Cogburn, like just the scene before. They have that scene where he gets a bit drunk and then she's like, mm. no, I chose the wrong man. I should have chose I've... the guy who was perving at me while I was well, sleeping. to be fair... I feel like she's trying to hitch a wagon to the person who's You'll actually going to, you know, present results. And as far as Matty is concerned, this man is a washed-up drunk. Mm. He's shown himself to be good in a fight and an ambush. But that's when sober. But he was he was barely sober there. The moment <laughs> they find all of those bottles of whiskey... He is shit-faced for the vast majority of the rest of the film. So I think it's I think it's her just being practical more than mm. picking a favorite. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the ending. Uh so Cogburn beats the Pepper Gang and Maddie after shooting Cheney and killing him falls down that hole and gets bitten by a snake. The snakes that they have been uh leading up to all movie. Mm. With the, that rope trick, you put the rope around you, that somehow stops the snake. Yeah, because the snake's like, oh shit, a rope. <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah. it's hemp. I can't well, touch hemp, I'm allergic. I'm an, I'm an indoor cat. I I don't know how that works. <laughs> Maybe it's because the snake thinks it's another snake. 
a much larger snake. But uh, when the snakes start crawling out of that dead body and just start coming out of the rocks, it's like, yeah. get fucked. Absolutely not. That <laughs> cave is can... a bad place. That cave is a bad place. I don't like it. <laughs> and Massey gets bit, and so has to be taken to a doctor. I honestly thought we were going to get Old Mate back. The crazy teeth-collecting bear man. <laughs> well, I think, wasn't that kind of... No, because he was going the other direction, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah, that would have been fun. But I think that, uh, yeah, it's a really sort of operatic ending, I suppose. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's, it's all been about the characters. The drama, the high drama, mm. comes from the character interactions. It has from the beginning of the movie. It is right till the end. The action, so to speak, is rare, and when it happens, it's quick. Um, there's no sort of like point. hiding behind a barrel, ducking out and shooting, hiding behind the barrel again, ducking out and shooting that goes over and people, you know, falling over the banisters of saloons and things. It's not no, that it's kind of Western. Bang. It's like bang, the Stop. person goes down. And usually it stops things pretty immediately. Like you, the only action sequence, quote unquote, that lasts longer than 30 seconds in this movie is the charge against Cogburn at the end. The, fill your hand, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Which is a classic line. Yeah. And, and I prefer the way Bridges does it. Oh, yeah. He has a better reading than uh, Wayne does. But it's uh, it's it been building up to this as a sort of a moment of finality, a moment of catharsis. Yeah. These character relationships. I think it's yeah. interesting we never see Labeef again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that we hear from the narration that... Uh, she never sees Cogburn again. He's gone by the time she wakes up. She loses the arm, but he's just sort of vermoosed. Um, yeah. Then he's joined a riding show. Yeah, 25 years later, she hears from him. And he dies three days before she gets there. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a very poignant ending, how she buries... She gets his body exhumed from the trader cemetery and uh, gets him buried on her family plot. Mm. Um. That shows how much he meant to her. Mm. Well, I do think, like, was it that easy to claim a body <laughs> back then? They just looked in and like, yeah, can I have that one? I promise you I knew him. <laughs> it's like, it's not a weird thing, guys, come on. It's like, um, uh, I don't think it's like people were window shopping. I don't think they looked at the, I don't think they looked at the headstone and were like, hmm, that's a rare vintage, I'll take that one. Look, I, I don't think you could just walk into any Confederate cemetery and pick and choose. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. Uh, um, but that is an interesting element of the story, too. This is post-Civil War. And post-Civil War, America was a deeply dangerous place. And rapidly changing as well. Mm. Mm. Only, what, 30 years after this? You'll be in the 1940s. And... No. Well, you'll, you'll be in the early 1900s, and yeah. it's not as far back as people would think from what we consider a modern world. Well, it's, it is quite far back, but the number is lower than people would expect. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Matty says in the ending, that the world had drastically changed by the time she was a grown woman. And... I do have to say that some of the CGI of them riding to town, riding back to, not riding back to town, riding to get Matty help, not CGI, but like the visual effects there of them riding, like face on. Dodgy. Yikes. 
I think it sort of works as this sort of ephemeral on death door kind of like Frodo going to Rivendell. And, and there's also thing. parts of it because just wakes up Gandalf. And Gandalf is just laughing. But part of it <laughs> is also the fact that they couldn't film very much at night time because Haley Steinfeld was 13, 14 years old. Mm. And she couldn't work for as Late many hours as they would have desired. So it seems like they may have had to film those on a set as a compromise. But you get some of the most gorgeous shots in oh, that yeah. sequence the, as well. The silhouette it? Yeah. The silhouettes? Yeah. yeah. Gorgeous stuff. No notes on the silhouettes. Those are fantastic. Um, um, I like what Domo Gleason is doing, for as little as he is in it. He's very good at getting stabbed. He really is? Like, <laughs> okay. He, he turn- I'm just saying, he turns on the f- fear very well. Yeah, he had oh, not really yeah. been... This was sort of between before the Domino Gleasonaissance, um, yeah, which we had coming to us, and which oh, really, just, ha- I, I would argue, the Gleasonaissance has has never stopped. I mean, he had done, he hadn't really done much of note. I mean, this was the same year as he had that very small role in the last two Deathly, last two Harry Potter movies as yeah, Bill was, Weasley. Uh, it was Bill Weasley, yeah, yeah, but like. I think About Time in 2013 is the one where he starts to get mm. bigger things. Because from that, then he's in Frank and Calvary and Ex Machina and Brooklyn and Star Wars and The Revenant. And, yeah. you know, it, it sort of doesn't stop. And he's really good in The Revenant, too. Um, I would still like to see more of him. Well, he's... Perhaps not in a... Perhaps in a more heroic role. Well, he did that um, miniseries on FX last year called The Patient where he played mm. a serial killer who kidnapped a therapist to cure him. <laughs> and the therapist was played by Steve Carell. John, we have to track that down. Mm-hmm. I, think it's on, uh, I think it's on Disney Plus in Australia. Mm. Yeah, we'll I've seen the that, pictures of it. Seems cool. Anyways, it seems like we're reaching the end of our conversation here, unless there's anything you two would like to add. Not as of the moment. No. Well, in that case, why don't we move on to the IMDb Parents Guide, which for the uninitiated is where we discuss the prudish and or pervy entries in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie of choice in the week. Um, There are two entries here. One is in Sex and Nudity. A man says that he's kissed a woman, not graphic. (laughs) (laughs) They still be telling us how many people hold hands. Now we're going with... Not even seeing the thing on the screen, but the mere suggestion of it happening <laughs> at some point in the past. Brilliant. Good lord. In Violence and Gore, this one is entirely reasonable, but it's on here because of a, a beautiful, beautiful spelling error. <laughs> Man cuts his friend's fingers, stabs him with a knife in his chest. He is then shit in his face. <laughs> <laughs> They picked the right moment, but that spelling is gold. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Who has their autocorrect set to shit? See, but I think the main problem is... That's gotta be an autocorrect. And they've been typing shit in their text messages that has been getting changed to shot, so they've gone in and changed every instance of shot to shit. I think you're overthinking it. Maybe the person just can't spell. Look, that's the main problem (laughs) with IMDb. A lot of the information that you find in the parents' guide, in the cast list, hell, even in the trivia section, it's all just people 
reporting this stuff here. Yeah. A lot of which can't be trusted. So this is just a an after effect of the mm. lack of moderation on IMDb. Uh, all right. So now why don't we move on to our discussion of who in this movie would, which character in this movie would most likely to to be paying for a blue verified checkmark on Twitter? Cheney? Mm. The shopkeeper for his business. No, no, no. I do think it would be Cheney, uh, because I don't see Cogburn or Labeef having a Twitter. Yeah. And the shopkeepers they, not too, the kind of guys. Shopkeepers too frugal to be much too frugal. Fair enough. Uh, he he's unwilling to spend that much money on it, my dude. Uh, I think the barnyard guy would have a verified Twitter given to him. Uh, celebrity <laughs> status, of course. Uh, oh, because he because he, he, he was widely followed, and he had one before that came. He in. had a blue check mark before yeah. the switch show. Yeah, the beef and Cogburn would have like those grayed out like government official. Once. <laughs> yeah, true. Because <laughs> uh, they're a ranger and a marshal, respectively. Yeah, no. that's true. Yeah. So def- definitely Cheney. He seems to type. All right. So now, why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie? What our favorite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> Me. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Hayley Steinfeld. I think that she walks away with it. Um, This was her first movie. She had done like a background role in an episode of a quickly cancelled Kelsey Grammer TV show. Before this, she had done like a short film. But this was her first movie and she was nominated for an Oscar for it. And not, not only that, but an Oscar that was deserved. An Oscar that, frankly, um, you know, she would have, she would just as easily have Deserved being nominated in the actual leading yeah. actress. Who was the competition? Oh, Natalie Portman me... was there, I think, for Black Swan. Yeah, Natalie Portman won that year for back for Black Swan in leading role. Um, what about supporting? Uh, that was Melissa Leo in The Fighter. Mm. So this I haven't is seen that one, so I'm not sure. They actually, it's not a bad lineup, all things considered. I think the 2010 Oscars in general are largely quite respectable as. Mm as lineups go. Um, 2010 was a fairly decent year for yeah. films. So mm. so actress is Natalie Portman, who wins for Black Swan. Uh, nominated Annette Bening in The Kids Are All Right, Nicole Kidman in Rabbit Hole, Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone, and Michelle Williams in Blue Valentine. Um, I would say that for the, for the impact that the movies have made, I, I reckon you could probably... I think the one you want to remove there is probably Annette Bening. If you're going to put Haley Steinfeld mm. in the mix, um, but supporting actress Melissa Leo wins for the Fighter. Haley Steinfeld's nominated. Amy Adams for the Fighter. Helena Bonham Carter for The King's Speech, and Jackie Weaver for Animal Kingdom. Always good to I see Aussie there. I haven't seen the Fighter, so I can't really make a judgment there. But Steinfeld definitely deserved it. Oh, the Fighter was very, very well received. I mean, it got like Christian Bale won supporting actor as well. Like it, it got a lot of uh, nominations, screenplay, all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, Steinfeld is my MVP for this movie because she really does walk away with it. She is such a, you know, arrives on the scene and she's a movie star. She's a, a performer yeah. to watch. She's a great actress. And she's proven that since. I mean, she had what I think all 
young actors and actresses have when they prove themselves so early is that they've got to sort of navigate the lack of parts available for them. Um, mm. So... Because a role her, like this comes once in a blue moon. Yeah. So she she doesn't have a great few years following this, I wouldn't say. I mean, she does... Um, let me see. I was looking at this before. She does the Romeo and Juliet as she does Juliet as in Romeo and Juliet in 2013. Um, Ender's Game. Uh, but after that, she sort of falls into a couple of like smaller ones that don't tend to really go places. She's in that bizarre movie, Barely Lethal, about a teenage mm. girl who's a special ops agent, like who's being run basically by Samuel L. Jackson as the the person yeah. running the agency and she sort of goes off grid to try and have a real life. I remember, I still remember the trailer. I've never seen it, but it's just such a weird trailer, but edge of 17 boosts her back yeah. up. And then she's in the yeah. pitch perfect sequel. She's in Bumblebee. She's in spider verse. She does Dickinson on, um, Apple, Apple TV, TV, arcane Hawkeye. Uh, yeah, she's in a good spot now, I think. Um, and she's all pretty different roles. All things considered. Mm. A lot of variety there. My favourite scene or sequence, I'm going to give it to the uh, the sort of road trip portion as after Labeef, I've referenced it already several times, but after Labeef leaves the first time and it's sort of Rooster and Maddie on their sort of horseback trip through the territory, uh, finding dead bodies and whatnot and Rooster going on and just <laughs> they chattering. They find one dead body. Chattering nonstop. That's great stuff, and I think it's great character stuff, and it it really shows so much of what I like about this movie: the acting, the incredible writing, the character development, the cinematography uh, by Roger Deakins. I think it it uh, really sums up a lot of what I like about the film. So I'm going to go with that. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, uh, I'm going to be greedy, and I'm going to say Rooster. Um, I want him in as much of this movie as possible, and I think that he would be really good in the role. I think he could nail the kind of like slightly dopey, um, slightly amiable but with an edge character that Rooster is. Um, and I would love to see John Lithgow in a western, like properly in a western. I mean, I know he did The Homesman that Tommy Lee Jones movie, but that's like a bit part basically that he did as a favor. Um, he's playing like a preacher, but to have him be like a proper cowboy with an eye patch and he's shooting people and riding a horse, I'm all in on can that. You imagine, can you imagine John Lithgow saying the words, fill your hand, you son of a bitch, before he puts the reins in his teeth and fires two guns <laughs> at the approaching horseman? Absolutely, I can. <laughs> that, my friends, is cinema. Uh, so for me, I would have to give my MVP to Haley Steinfeld. What a hell of a debut! Honestly, and she's one of the actors I always am interested to see in projects because she has such a command of the screen. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's so precise with her performances, and she's always just really fun to watch because you can tell that she's a considered performer, and she has everything that a movie star needs, I think. And there's a reason she's such a hot commodity right now. And it all starts here in True Grit. What a performance beyond her years here. And she was nominated for an Oscar at 14. Who does that? I mean, Anna Paquin won when she was 12. 
I mean, but still, it's rare. Yeah. You keep talking. I'm going to find what are the youngest nominees. Like, it's such a rare thing to happen, and I think the nom- the nomination was absolutely deserved here, but I'd have to watch the fighter to be able to tell whether or not I think she deserved the win. Um, My favorite scene or sequence has to be... It's when the doctor shows up. I love how the... It kind of looks like a spooky part of the woods. Mm. In a weird way, lots of fog, lots of trees without leaves on them, bodies hanging from... Like, one body, but still, a body hanging from a tree. Quite high up, I might add. And such a weird performance from the guy who plays this doctor. Uh, Let me find... Doctor in quotation marks. Uh, Doctor in quotation marks. A collector of sorts. Because he says he sold... He would sell them the body because he already got the teeth that he wanted. I just need to find the... I don't know, it doesn't actually say. The youngest the youngest Oscar winner uh, for any competitive category is Tatum O'Neill, who won Best Supporting Actress? I think, yes. Best Supporting Actress for Paper Moon at the age of 10 years and 148 days. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's got to be the part with the the weird, creepy uh, doctor. It's just, it's such a Coen Brothers touch. And I don't know, I just like the ambiance of that scene a lot. And it is part of that road, road trip segment, mm. uh, which is all just really great stuff. Uh, who would we cast with John Lithgow? Lawson has the right instinct here. Who else is it going to be? But John Lithgow as Rooster Cogburn. It's just, it's everything we want. When we came up with this segment, this is what this is for. <laughs> you get to see him in gunfights. You get to see him work with fantastic dialogue. He wears a hat. It's it's everything that this segment is for. So, it, of course, it was going to be the role of Rooster Cogburn he's given. I'm sorry, Mr. Bridges, but John Lithgow needs this role more than you do. Because <laughs> everything would be right in the world if we got that. Well... It would solve one big injustice. The rarity of seeing John Lithgow fire a gun. I give this my MVP to Haley Steinfeld. She does such an incredible job here at such a young age. She comes onto the scene fully formed as the actress she'll continue to be. And she arrives with all the star power that she needs. She acquits herself very well with two seasoned actors in, obviously, Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon. And plays the character pitch perfectly. She is precocious, she is stubborn, she is witty, and is beyond her years, and it's such a good performance of that. For what my favorite scene of sequence, I think it's the part where they get to that cabin, and they are trying to get Domo Gleason and that other guy to come out. Because that shows how shrewd Rooster can be, and all of that up to the point where the other gangs show up is a good example of the way that they can work together to solve an issue and how that can be utterly ruined by the beef. I noticed something uh, in the cast list. The voice of uh, Matty's lawyer. That's J.K. Simmons. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how about and that? And who I would get John Lithgow as? I mean, obviously there's part of me that thinks the weird bear guy in the woods. That's a perfect pick for him. Uh, farm animal guy. And again, a perfect role for John Lithgow. A- absolutely fantastic, but it has to be his rooster. 
he would be able to bring a lot of gravitas to the role. He'd be able to bring that grit. He'd be able to bring that size. We, I don't mean to emphasize so often that he is a tall individual, but he can be imposing in this. And again, funny how he gets to fire guns, and I think it's the big role that you want him as in this. So now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-true-grit podcast or not. Uh, Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? I'm saying yes. I liked this movie when I originally saw it in cinemas when it came out, but I really loved it this time. And I saw what it was doing more. I really have a just a better, you know, frame of reference at the age of 29 to appreciate this movie than I did at the age of 16. And I think it is a really fantastic film. It's brilliantly acted. It's impeccably written. And I've grown to like Westerns a lot more in the interim, I must mm. say. So I'm voting yes. I think it's a, a great movie. Yep. So for me, I'm going to second Lawson here. You know me by now. I love me a Western. I just love the aesthetic of this stuff. Deacons was really well with the cinematography here. Not his best work. That would come later in his career. And the Coen brothers nail the tone here. It has its humor, but it also has its brutal violence. Like, it's sudden, it's quick, and the acting is all top-notch from everyone involved. So, I'm gonna have- I'm gonna say yes. I, I am pro-True Grit. I second remake. and third all of the things that my co-hosts have said, because this has all of those things that you want from a Western. It's brutal, it's gritty, it doesn't compromise on the stresses and pains that people would live with in that time. It doesn't compromise on the way that the people treat others and people who are othered. And it doesn't pull its punches. It is held together by magnificent performances, a fantastic score by Carter Burwell, really great writing and direction from the Coens, and beautiful cinematography from Roger Deakins. So it's a yes for me. Yep, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a pro-True Grit podcast. So, uh, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Card. If you join myself on the bright side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about True Grit? What do you think about the 2010 True Grit in comparison to the uh, film, the the earlier film, I forget which year that was, 67? 69. The 69 film, and how do you compare both to the book that it's based on? Has anyone seen Rooster Cogburn, where he (laughs) road trips with Catherine Hepburn? We desperately need to know about that movie. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind that on certain podcast apps, when you comment, it's for the show on the whole, and on others, it's for specific episodes. If you aren't commenting on one of the services that comments on the whole, just let us know which episode you're referring to with your commentary. Uh, just, it keeps us informed about what you're talking about, and it's common sense. (laughs) Uh, but please like, comment, and subscribe. I've spoken about several terrible things to come from the robot occupation of Earth. The terrors outside the barriers from the mascots. 
the fear that comes across the heart at Christmas time. I have also spoken about the entertainment we have currently. One of the real bright sparks in this is the resurgence of the Muppets as a cultural force. We have spoken in the past about Muppets Treasure Island, Muppets Christmas Carol, but now we have such classics as Muppets True Grit, with Labeef played by Fozzie Bear, Rooster Cogburn played by Kermit the Frog, and Tom Chaney played by Uncle Deadly. <laughs> Obviously, we have Matty played by a human person, uh, but, you know, is- mentioning any art, mentioning any actors that will emerge from here to now would break the title. I don't think Uncle Deadly's the right pick for Chaney. I think Uncle Deadly should play Pepper. I think Beaker I should play worked. Chaney. I never said it worked. <laughs> yeah. really the Henson Company still keep it up to really good yeah. standard, and they have musical numbers this time around, which is fun. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Say the line so, in Kermit's voice, Holly. Hmm. All right. Is that me? I can't do it when I'm smiling. Feel your hand, you son of a bitch. Uh, that wasn't good. Feel your hand, you son of a bitch. Closer. Ah, sorry. I've been having throat problems. I'm normally a lot better at the Kermit. Uh, so, Lawson, what do we have prepared for us next week? Uh, well, a very different movie. Um, a movie, actually, that we have already referenced this episode. Uh, another movie that was up against True Grit at the Oscars. And while True Grit was nominated for 10 awards and won none, this was much more successful. It is The King's Speech. Uh, if you would like to follow along at home, it is available for streaming on the bin, on Binge, Foxtel Now, Stan, and Beamer Film, whatever that is, as well as for purchase or rental on the Amazon, YouTube, Telstra, Fetch, Apple, and Beamer Film stores. <laughs> okay. Uh, we need to stop. Like, there are too many of these services out there. Well, you can't, you, actually, you can't buy it on the Beamer Film store. You can only rent it. The other ones mm. you can buy or rent on. The Beamer Film, you can only rent or stream it if you have a Beamer Film subscription. How much does a Beamer Film <laughs> subscription go for? Um, don't say we don't teach you anything, because I guarantee you've never oh, heard of it's, Beamer Film. It's free if I join as a member of my local library. Oh, that's huh. nice. Okay, gang, get a library card, because libraries are incredibly important places, not only for the education of those emerging into the world, but also for yourselves, where you can explore new worlds, you know, support your local library. I could also just uh, subscribe for five ninety nine a month if I don't have a library card. I'd rather you have a library card. Uh, but yeah, so join us next week for when we discuss... The King's Speech. I needed to... For when we discuss the King's Speech. Until then, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis.